Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Adaptive because its function is to really save your life in your very dangerous situation. Um, now, and I mentioned lots of this, the exhaustion part is pretty bad. It literally, literally leads to destruction of uh, hippocampus. Um, now, I will say that most of us really never join. This is when you collapse, like you're done. Right? Most of us never did that far. So, we can talk about s- stressful events in, in the modern case, right? And then compare them. So, so look at that. How they how they operate the GAS? Are there cases when they save lives? Right. And catastrophes, things like natural disasters, attacks, you know, things like that. Nobody likes these events. Like universally, no one's like, yeah, this is fun, kind of fun. Like, you know, some people like roller coasters. No one likes terrorist attacks. No, no one likes the, the building being on fire. It's not fun. Right? And your stress system kicking in there is sensible. In fact, that's, what it, that's the evolutionary problem it evolved for. So that's good. Like, it allows you to run away. You can't fight a fire. You can't just attack it. You're running away is the best move. After you grab a couple of beers, this um, mm-hmm. is what I did when I was on a fire. Um, it's a couple years ago. Yeah, I knew it was going to burn down. I closed off the room where the fire was, and I went to my beer fridge, grabbed two beers, and went outside and went to the fire. That's awesome. Whereas Isabel went and got her passports and some photos. Just shows you how she's sensible. Um, so, it's funny that. I thought you guys heard the story before. The firefighters arrived. And they put it up quickly. Another fire truck came. Um, a couple of guys walk up, and John rolls down the window of the car and says, Excuse me, sir. Is my TV okay? <laughs> I said, I, 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 I don't care. I just got it. And I said, It's okay, John. And he said, Will I still get Netflix? Not yesterday. <laughs> and I said yes. I said American Netflix. I said yes. <laughs> yes, I'm still using. I'm still using our render. One little wing is fine. Scary. So that's all bad stuff. Now significant life changes. These typically, our stress system doesn't save our life here, but will react as if they're catastrophes. Now they're not fun. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad. Right? And in fact, you probably can't help but your system kicking in there either. Right? Even though the perceived environmental threat isn't really life-threatening, you probably can't help it. Now, the interesting thing is here, these are all, of course, negative things will typically be negative, something will happen, it works, whatever. Um, positive significant life changes are also stressful. So things like starting a new job, starting a new relationship, or having a baby, the opposite of the dying, are really stressful. And our stress systems kick in. 
and they don't, there it doesn't solve any problem. So it's a matter of how you perceive it. It's a matter of how, and people that have real anxiety problems, one of the things that therapists do is they try to show them that, or explain to them that even the positive changes they're about to make in their lives with therapy works are going to be really stressful. But again, these aren't huge. The biggest problem we have are sort of what people call daily hassles, like loud neighbors or annoying professors or bad weather this morning, you know? If you had to walk in today during the thunderstorm, that would have been unpleasant. Your coffee maker breaks or your team loses, right? So you're watching a hockey game and your team loses. Right. It used to be that the fact that Montreal lost their second game of the season, their second game, their second game, I wouldn't have slept last night if this was 15 years ago. Yeah, maybe 20. I'd be like, I'd be lying in bed like, I love the lost to Edmonton and even scoring because they have goals. I just, what the hell's wrong with them? The power play looks like shit. I do that all night. It's really healthy. And this is, in fact, what you can make it. You, you, you can easily tell yourself, take a step back and say, do I need my fight or flight response to kick in right now? Is it going to help Montreal Canadiens win a hockey game? Is it going to fix my coffee maker? Is it going to change the weather? Is it going to stop Dave from telling his annoying stories? Or is it going to tell the new neighbors to shut up? If I can do any of those things. Right? So one of the big things we have here then, like, they seem like nothing... If you're facing other bad stuff, these things can add up. But even if you face those things as their stressors, which they are not, then your JS doesn't kick during these situations. But I mean, these are the things I'm guessing of in the EDA, our ancestors, I doubt that their GAS kicked in during those things. Oh man, someone took my alligator tooth. Yeah. That guy? I love that guy. So, one of the things about this is perceived control. The inability to speak is another problem. It's the first thing with the new lips. Perceived control. The effect of stress is mediated by perceived control. This is how much control you think you have. So, this is optimists compared to pessimists. People that are optimists actually fare better in life than pessimists. And I mean, in all facets of life, they have better relationships, better jobs. We make more money to do better at school. Now, it may be the case, however, that we don't, well, we don't know what direction this goes in there, do we? It's easy to be an optimist when you're smart, good looking, and have a good job. Mm -hmm. right. When you do have less perceived control, you have more stress hormones released during the stress. <clears throat> this is an easy thing to study, this has been studied a zillion times. You can give people perceived control tests. Uh, they're, they're pretty straightforward uh, pens and paper desk. You give them this perceived control test, and then you give them a minor stressor, something like a math quiz. Okay? And you can even vary the stress level of the math quiz because you give people a bunch of hard math problems and you say that the average 10 year old can solve them. That makes it stress, stressful. stressful. Stressful! What's wrong with me today for some people? Um, whereas for other, another group, you might say, try these, they're kind of difficult. You're not going to feel as much stress there. And then you compare lower and higher, lower and higher levels of perceived control, and you actually and then you just take the blood sample. It's really a very straightforward kind of test. And you get a lot more stress hormones released. People are actually, their GAS is kicking in because they can't solve a math problem. 
And some of you are sort of nodding, thinking I have that reaction sometimes when I write tests, when I write the paper. You have to realize that that actually isn't healthy. A little bit of it's good. We talked about that, but a lot of it is going to, well, it could be eventually. Because it can lead to things like heart disease. Again, we didn't have the sedentary lifestyle we have today. Right? We exercised quite a bit differently then. Remember I said that I don't think hunter-gatherers actually, they sat down as much as we do, but the amount, the, the intense exercise they did was a lot more. I'm not saying this should lead you all to do CrossFit. <laughs> How do you know someone's doing CrossFit? Oh, they'll tell you. Um, but uh, I'm looking for a diet or exercise regime where people don't tell me the diet or exercise regime at all. That's all I want. Do whatever you want. I don't care. Have an all-butter diet where you just lie on your back. I don't care. Just don't tell me about it. And then there's a little update to their Facebook status. I ate 12 pounds of butter today and lied down a lot. It's a new Nike butter app. Anyway, um, got a whole bit there, I think, that we work on. Um, so we get the stressors, we have diet problems, plus personality, you throw that together. Uh, one of the interesting things that was done in the, this is in the 50s, Friedman and Rosen got the ball rolling on this stuff, where they looked at fat and diet and smoking. And they were equal in men and women in the 50s. Remember, it was the 50s. Everybody smoked, and everyone ate big, fatty steaks. It was back when there was a, it was a much more civilized time, it seems to me. Um, men got coronary heart disease, women didn't. Men had heart attacks and died. Women didn't have that. At the time, and probably still today, men had more high-stress jobs. And I am not saying that being, and again, typically women were at home with kids. I'm not saying that's not high-stress. But a lot, a lot of that's also about perceived control. It's easier to have perceived control when you're a mom at home with a kid because you know you are the mom. When your dad is a corporate machine, it's a little harder. I'm not saying it wasn't probably easier to be a man. And it still is. Interesting um, point here was that accountants were fine until they told when tax time came around, and that's when they had heart attacks. Which doesn't should surprise us, right? So this came the idea of the type A personality. Now this has really been blown, blown out of proportion, by the way. People with type A personalities, such as the guy in the middle there, that's my father, um, me and my brother. <coughs> that's a good job on camera. What's that? He does a good job on camera. Well, my brother, oh yeah, he really does. That's even not that great a picture of that. <coughs> My country says this shirt contains mature themes and adult subjects. Um, what we're doing there is deep frying cheesecake. <laughs> and we might have So, people with heavy personalities like my dad had are very driven, they're very time dependent. They want to get things done at one time. Um, why do people like this? My, my dad had a heart attack when he was 53 years old, so four years older than me. And I think I told you he was so tight that he drove himself to the hospital. Because um, <laughs> he was insane. Um, people with, they, they sleep less, the type A personality folks. They smoke more, which is, I don't know where that comes from. It may have something to do with the personality. It may just be the kind of jobs they get because they are more driven. They, as my mother would say, they fly off the handle more easily. Oh, you're going off the deep end. 
My mother sounds nothing like that, by the way. But that is an expression that she uses, both of them. And my father invented anger. Um, so, and I, I had a real anger problem for a long time, a long chunk of my life until I had some therapy. So it's interesting here because we thought people that this is not we would think at first this is not adaptive behavior, except that it's adaptive for some people. Would you want a leader of a country or a city? We all had an election yesterday. Who just said, I don't know, I'm just going to take things as they come. I wouldn't vote for that person. You know, somebody was running a, a, a company. You would, if, you, if you were to invest some money in a company and you heard a, a, a shareholder's call, you know, maybe he's, yeah, we lost some money, I'll try to find something to do about it. <laughs> no, I want a guy that's angry and fires people at that point. <laughs> you know, it's, so we, it has advantages, probably. So, as you know, the immune system two types of cells basically be cells bacteriates and cells by viruses and cancer. The immune system actually stress suppresses the immune system. Now think about this. If you were being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, should you worry about the sore leg you have where you have a little infection and fight it, or should you just run? Probably just run and we'll worry about the sore leg later. So your immune system actually gets depressed during a stress reaction. And it makes more sense. It makes a lot of sense if you're being chased by a safety tiger. Does it make sense if you are mad at your neighbors? No. But you get more sick. People that are stressed more even more cancer than people that are stressed. So the stress reaction is really important. It's something we really have to pay attention to. And this is one of the things that health psychologists are really interested in. There a certain type of cancer that they have more, or is it uh, the stuff I've seen is just cancers? Yeah. Now we have to factor out things like people that have more stress and smoke more. But even when you factor all that stuff out, um, the stress stress is one of the variables that matters. Now again, I, there are times when it's sensible to be stressed. You know, there really are. But when it's something like, oh, I don't know. Think of a good recent example where I got angry for no apparent reason. Usually it's something to do with our computer network at home. Because it's very complicated, our computer network. And there's 30 odd devices hooked up to it. And when something, small thing goes wrong, like when I hear, oh, I can't get to, you know, French Netflix. <laughs> I gotta fix it. And it's not that hard to fix, but it's like, oh, oh no, we need a canine. Now what's going on? I know we reboot this and reboot that and all this other stuff. Most of those things happen, by the way, when I'm away. Almost always happen when I'm in another city. I figure I'll be dead in a week. Um, so, now, <laughs> they have sort of healthy lifestyle thing. I don't want to preach it because I don't think that helps anybody. So you can't say, uh, you know, I smoke, drink, smoke crack, have a protected sex every day with Haitian prostitutes, but I, I'm not stressed very much, so I'll be fine. Um, no, it's not just, people overuse the stress thing, I think I said that at the beginning. So you gotta, it's a whole lifestyle thing. 
So health psychologists are interested in this stuff. Why do people go to the doctor? Why do people care about health things? Some people do, some people don't. And those are stressors, those are real stressors. If you're actually sick, if you're actually really sore, that probably is a real stressor. And sometimes the GAS reaction, while it's not going to save your life, it makes some sense that it kicks in. Right? A couple years ago, out of nowhere, I noticed right here in my head was this, this thing. What the hell? And I go away. And it hadn't gone away for a couple days. So, I'm like, oh, oh. so I started taking pictures of it. So I figured, let's see if it changes. Now I call the doctor and I say, what is this thing? Coming out a couple of weeks, I thought, well, obviously they can't think it's too bad. They would have said, come right in right now, or I'm almost dead. <laughs> but I told my doctor, it was gone. And she said, what's the problem? I said, it's, I don't know, but I, just, I have a whole album on my phone. <laughs> she said, you're the only person who ever does what you're supposed to do. You took pictures. She said, I said, well, what is it? She goes, I don't know, but skin cancer doesn't go away, so I wouldn't worry about it. It doesn't, I had a touch of it, but it's gone now. <laughs> so, but I tend to get a person that doesn't go to the doctor unless they're really, there's something pretty nasty, right? I probably should go a little off. So it's kind of a stress reaction in a lot of respects. How am I dealing with that? Um, one of the key things you can do is aerobic exercise. Because it probably helps you to stay in that resistance phase of the GAS. Right? So you're not, you're not going to hit that exhaustion phase when you run out of hormones and you're just spent, like I was telling you about the Royal Marine Commando show I was watching. The guy, you know, just had run 60 miles and 600 meters left, broke his leg. And turned green. Like he literally, you could see they had a green tinge in his face. He's like, no, sir, I can go on. No, you can't. See, less exhaustion. That's, that's really the important thing here. So a lot of this then comes into not only the stress thing, but the kind of food you eat on, right? So the problem with going on, quote, a diet is that we have set points for our body weights. And that's a hard thing to change. That's a hard thing to change. Diet, of course, changing your diet alone and comparing diet and exercise, obviously. Uh, it's going to be different. I know you all know this, but I like say, telling people you don't burn off fat and turn it into muscle. No matter what somebody on YouTube tells you, it's just something you do. So I'm sure you know this stuff. The important thing to think of is let's change. If we're thinking about how our health is affected by our evolutionary history, should we then look at the kind of food our ancestors ate? Instead of looking at the food that we eat now. Right? Everything's pumpkin spiced. So, should we change... <laughs> Is that Jess? I thought you had a funny pumpkin spice joke. I'm all, right now, I think pumpkin spice jokes are great. When did that become a thing? Like 10 years ago, pumpkin spice, everything wasn't a thing. Which, by the way, is pumpkin pie it's spice. because it became a white girl thing, and then like memes started from that. No, but this has been all around before that. Though. I think it was around before that. I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, the funny thing on SNL, the other night they said someone had bought 52 weeks of uh, uh, like a, a year's supply of pumpkin spice latte, and the guy just said, needless to say, she's white. Um, but, but I mean, it wasn't a thing 
And then suddenly everything had it, right? So like it's suddenly Tim Hortons have their donuts like that. Whatever. So I, I'm just curious why. It's an interesting thing where stuff the trends come from. I thought it was even just in the last five years it got crazy. Yeah. Oh, I think it was around, but yeah, then it got crazy. That's what I'm saying. I'm curious. You made the point about catching on everybody else, but I think it was that's more recent when people started making fun of it and stuff. You know, weird. You know, it's hit its, ab, it's hit its peak when McDonald's makes a pumpkin spice shake. Yeah. And there's actually uh, an auto body shop on Great Northern Road, and the sign says, "Come in, get an oil, get an oil change, try our pumpkin spice." <laughs> See, that's good on them. That's funny. I like that. When I was selling hockey cards on eBay in the late 1990s, I used to say all my hockey cards were Y2K compliant. <laughs> and I'd get an email on the other now and saying, "What's that mean?" Say, it's a joke for hockey cards. <laughs> That's good. I really like that. Um, so we can think about sort of paleolithic prescription, right? You got paleo diet. So that's another thing, right? I'm paleo and doing CrossFit. Yes, I know. Stop telling me. They often go together. And it's interesting because, in fact, that's probably closer to the way our ancestors lived than going to spin class and not eating any and not eating any fat. Right? So is it did our ancestors eat only vegetables? Well, probably not. Some of them did. Humans are interesting that way. There are subsets of people today we know, a hunter gatherers that eat hardly any meat at all. They eat nuts and vegetables. Okay? Is it all meat? And this is what most people would think of paleo things. That's what it is meat. Well, there are, again, hunter-gatherer people that eat, we know today, nothing like this. The, the Inuit, for example, what do they live on? Meat and fat. Right? You look at the Maasai in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. They eat milk, meat, and blood. That's what they live on. They have some, one of the lowest coronary heart disease amounts in the world. Um, they're nomadic people. They're hunter-gatherers, but they're nomadic people. Um, but it's not like they're not hooked into the... I was watching a show literally about the Maasai. You know Anthony Bourdain's show, Parts Unknown on CNN? He was with the Maasai and like eating with them and stuff like that. It's sort of a food show. But they all had cell phones. <laughs> they got their traditional garb on. They got their... They, they killed the goat. They eat the coagulated blood out of it and then start eating the raw kidneys and everything. Then one guy's like checking his Twitter feed. <laughs> I mean, it's not like they're not living... One, one guy said, yeah, my son goes to university in the States. So it's not like they're not hooked up to the world. They just live that way, which is very cool. They also have one of the lowest levels of coronary heart disease in the world. And they eat nothing but fat and meat and dairy, by the way. So is it all meat? It is for some people. It's probably just less dense, less calorically dense, generally, than what we eat today, too. Right? A lot of people talk about no grains. Because, you know, our ancestors didn't eat a lot of grain because they weren't cultivating grain. They started cultivating grain, and that's when they stopped eating honey bad. No, no so it's probably about caloric density more than anything. You know, think about this. Up until 
just after World War II, you couldn't, before World War II, really, 1930s, you couldn't, like buying a pound of sugar was a luxury. <clears throat> a pound of processed sugar, you couldn't do that. It wasn't a thing. Right? And it's interesting now that more and more people, more and more research is showing that the important thing isn't cutting down on fat. It's cutting down on complex carbohydrates that were something that we never ate, that are really calorically dense, right? But it's something we never ate. We weren't making bread and pasta on the Serengeti. We were eating vegetables, we were eating meat. So the food wasn't processed. See, we, fat and sugar are perfectly fine. Um, we didn't get fat and sugar in the sort of industrial quantities we can get now. You think about it. Nature's perfect food would be icing. It's just fat with sugar thrown into it. Right? Why do you think people like stuff like that? What, ice cream? It's really just a whole bunch of fat and a whole bunch of sugar, and it's delicious. Would it mean anything at all if like, you don't like those? Because I hate icing and ice cream and sweet things. People don't hate ice cream. You're, you're not even of this earth, are you? <laughs> no, I seriously don't like I ice cream. I think she might be one of them. Leave <laughs> <laughs> um, the body snatchers, nobody. Um, that's interesting. I mean, you don't like sweets at all? Like, I'm not big on sweets either, but I do like um, ice I like ice cream to the point where I can't have it in the house. It's like heroin. Sometimes I like it if it's like the consistency of cake, but I don't like icing or ice cream. So. Yeah. You don't like ice cream? No. Does anybody else not like ice cream? No. Okay, Deanna is a little well, iffy on it too. Makes me cough. It's weird. Makes you cough? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're, supposed to, you're supposed to swallow it, not inhale it. <laughs> <laughs> you're not smoking it. It's a cold thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 Fair enough. But I still like it though. <laughs> yeah. 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 Bacon ice cream, I can totally turn your mind down. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. It's <laughs> Um, see, it's interesting because, yeah, I don't think it means anything. I don't worry about it, you know. Um, I think the important thing to realize is that it's the kind of fat you're eating, right? And it's the amount of sugar you're eating. And the idea that high fructose corn syrup is somehow magically evil is bizarre because it's just freaking sugar. You know, or that honey is somehow better for you. Sugar. Right? Nothing magic about honey. There's nothing magic about high fructose corn syrup. It's just really sweet. Right? Oh, you know it's going to kill you. Oh, yeah, you're all going to die. Shut up. <laughs> Eat some aspartame. <laughs> Part of the thing that we could do, as far as people that have weight problems and stuff, is maybe they should accept their, these ideas. It's a, there's advantages, uh, advantages to being to accepting yourself for who you are. You know, you, that's you have less stress that way. But the disadvantage, of course, is you're still overweight, right? I mean, seriously, you're, you still have the problems associated with being overweight. So it's something to think about. I mean, I, I don't know. People live in any way they want. It's not my business. Um, I think a lot of the publicity about these things is pretty poorly done. You know, if you feed your children, they are worse than Hitler. 
I mean, that kind of preachy stuff, I don't know people like that. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like being told what to do. I'm an adult. Even though there's times when it's for my own good. So there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. I think a lot of the public speech just poorly done. Um, to conclude on this stuff, uh, stress is good if it's getting you out of, let's say, we do Thagger's speech, kissing you. Just as bad almost all the other times. So try to lessen it. Remember, it, it, the thing is, why is it still around my ass? Well, first of all, evolution works slowly. Secondly, it does save your life in certain situations. Basically, this whole topic was about how your mom was right about almost everything. You know, when you were younger and your mother was like, calm down. Don't eat so much. I hope you never smoke. She's right about all that stuff. Your mom knows stuff. So that's that. I kind of like that one, but it's kind of boring because it's all just that your mom's right about it. So, moving over to disorders. Yeah. Am I wrong or right? That's the right one, right? Down there. there. Must have an extra return there. So. Okay. Um, you probably didn't think you could use evolutionary theory to explain disorders, or at least understand them. Well, you'd be wrong. <laughs> um, now, it's certainly days. There's a whole way of looking at medicine nowadays called evolutionary medicine, and this is kind of a subset of that. Okay, so, and a lot of the stuff we talk about, just about stress and all that stuff, the evolutionary medicine angle comes in there. So, um, and it, it involves things like looking at not using antibacterial soap, that kind of thing, right? Because all you do is end up selecting for bacteria, antibacterial soap resistant bacteria in a micro environment on your body. Where you go? And then we get these hard to kill bugs in hospitals. So, that kind of thing. So, evolutionary medicine has a lot to say here. And I think a lot of the stuff you're going to hear about today, a lot of the sources that I have for some of these things come from that, reading that kind of stuff. Um, just because we can say there's an evolutionary underpinning to something doesn't make it any less problematic. But I think it's interesting to look at the evolutionary of things that are, well, psychologically, Dangerous for people, and the way we define typically disorders for those guys that aren't like psychiatrists, we typically define a, a psychological. We'd say something's a disorder when it's abnormal. First of all, like it's, it's rare, right? But it's also got to be that it's dangerous to the person, or dangerous to people around them, or disturbing to the person, or disturbing to people around them. Right, because just being rare, just being abnormal, could mean that being really smart or running really fast is a disorder. Maybe we don't think those are disorders, right? But hearing voices in your head that aren't there is disturbing to others and probably dangerous to you and to perhaps others. Typically not. And the interesting thing is, by definition, this behavior is always maladaptive. So we're going to look at an evolutionary angle to explain maladaptive behavior, which is going to be a little hard, perhaps, which is probably partially why a lot of this work is in its infancy. It, this is hard stuff to do. 
when we get to talk about depression, I'll tell you about an honor student that did some work with me on this stuff a couple of years ago, though. Okay, so generally, some possible evolutionary explanations of, of disorders, you know, no matter what they are. Some disorders may actually be defense mechanisms. And I don't mean in the Freudian sense. I mean they could actually be ways of defending yourself. Okay? Some of them could be side effects of some, some, some gene or some characteristics. It is enhancing. Right? We talked just 20 minutes ago about how someone with a quote type A personality ends up running an organization. That's pretty fitness enhancing. And then they end up having heart problems. We could have frequency dependent selection such that we could have something that is a rare, that when rare can be advantageous. Was that the one about being peaceful around um, people that are create war? Oh, you mean the hawks and doves kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, being if everybody's pleasant and you're a psychopath, you're gonna do really well. If everybody's a psychopath, you're not gonna do very well because you always do fighting all the time. Yeah, so it's that kind of idea. Yeah, exactly. We can look at behavior that we consider psychologically, either psychologically disturbing or disordered. I mean, this is a delicate thing to say, but a possible reproductive strategy is rape. It's not a very nice one. It does happen in the animal kingdom a lot. We call it, except we call it forced populations, when it happens among ducks, and it happens among crickets. We call it a forced population. But, and you can go on and on all you want about crime, violence, not sex. I, I don't really care. What I'm saying is, it happens in other animals. If it happened, it's obviously only going to, quote, work if it's rare. And I mean from an angle of actually producing autonomy. Because if everybody did it, everybody would always be on guard about it, and then it wouldn't, or it would be the normal thing, right? So that we think of psychologically either, we tend to think of people that, that, that do that as being psychologically disordered. Okay. And again, I don't have to say that I don't think it's good. If you think that I think that rape's okay, then you've got a whole other set of problems. I said I think it exists. And if you want to tell me that it doesn't exist, well, then you probably live in a fantasy land on Lolly Lane. So, but I mean, that kind of thing, right? Sexual violence. Horrible thing. Horrible thing. But we can maybe understand it. Right? Later on in the course, I'm going to tell you how I can understand racism from an evolutionary angle. Doesn't mean I think racism is cool. It could be the absence or the malfunctioning of a module, cognitive module. So literally just something that doesn't work right. So it isn't really something that even we can say, oh, but that's got an advantage to it. It actually doesn't. Just something doesn't work properly. Could be that. 
it could be a disconnect between the EEA and now. This this may be this nice example here again tying in something like sexual violence or um, violence between men when they compete, right? As we talked before, most homicides are men fighting men, and it's usually people that know each other, not people that are, stranger killings are rare. Um, they happen, but they're rare. And it's usually men fighting men, and you can look at that as intrasexual selection. And that may have made sense then. It doesn't work very well. I don't know a lot of women who find it attractive when two men literally fight to the death. Or even not to the death. Even ritualized combat. I think most of us look at that, but look at that. Most of the women I know look at that and go, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a prize? Ooh. I think this also explains why some men think that beeping horns and revving their engine to women is somehow attractive. <laughs> That's like a display of some sort. Why do guys do that? Have like a mini heart attack. That's not fun. But why do guys do it? It's not. There, not, there must be some woman somewhere that's like, oh, well. <laughs> that's track. No, there can't be. I don't know a single woman in my. I, I know women of many ages and different sexual orientations and women, all kinds of great, interesting people, and none of them think, well, that's hot. <laughs> I've just never seen that, so I don't know what's going on there. And the guys must learn at some point this isn't helping. Want to drive up and down Queen Street and rev our engine at women? <laughs> Sounds like a plan. We're in for some loving. You know, it's not going to happen. Very strange. It could also be just the extremes of polygenetic traits, like just too much of something, too little. Pretty obvious here that we're talking about something like mental retardation. It's the extreme polygenetic trait. Okay. So these are possible explanations, and now we can look at certain individual disorders that, that people have looked at from an evolutionary angle. Okay? Any questions about these, though, or any others you can think of, I guess? All right. So the first thing you think of is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, we just talked about stress. What happens is, Typically, this is somebody who's, who's been in a horribly stressful situation, we mentioned, right? Uh, but we can mention soldiers fighting wars, people that have survived natural disasters or man made disasters. Um, something that is so different from what we have evolved to do and to deal with that it has this huge effect that changes you forever. So this should be more common in what we want to call man-made situations. More common in situations that we've never faced evolutionarily. And it actually is more common in situations where it's more often than not caused by situations that are man-made. You're going to say there's been warfare since there's been humans. And you will be right. And I think probably always will be warfare. Which is not a nice thing to think, but it's probably true. Not with the stuff we've got today. Thank you. You know, it used to be you fought someone with a spear, then later maybe with a bow and arrow. And then, you know, eventually guns get invented. And now, you can kill thousands of people at once 
And it's interesting, who, do, who gets PTSD, it typically isn't pilots dropping bombs. They don't get to see who they're killing. That's a mission. You fly, you push a button, you fly home. It takes a lot of training, a lot of skill, etc., etc. It's more, you know, infantry soldiers that get this. Right? Because we have weapons that you, you, you could blow people's heads off from hundreds of meters away, thousands of meters away. The guy in Afghanistan, the Canadian soldier, the, the sniper that well, three and a half miles away, he shot a guy's head off. It's the world record for a sniper. That's bizarre. That's obviously a shot. My house to here, going, okay, gotcha. Wow. But I mean, we didn't have weapons like that. We're good at killing. We're proud of it, but we're really good at it. Humans are great at killing, wrecking planets. We're way to go. So the kind of stuff we have today... Now, it's interesting. I wonder, I wish we could somehow find out about amount of PTSD and the development of modern weapons. The first time we start hearing about what we used to call shell shock is World War I. In World War II, we called it battle fatigue. Change the name. And now we call it post-traumatic stress disorder. It seems like there's more and more as the weapons get more sophisticated, but it's also probably... So some people point to that, yeah, there it is, nice evidence. And the problem is that the social acceptability of a soldier saying, I really didn't enjoy what went on over there, and I didn't enjoy killing people and being, having my buddies, having their heads blown off, that's become a lot more socially acceptable for a soldier to say. And it still isn't, by the way, there's still too many uh, soldiers that... that Suicide, so it's interesting. I mean, it looks like that, and you don't hear about how people after the Napoleonic Wars had PTSD. But again, it's a different time culturally, socially. We're in the world's in a different place, so it's hard to say. I mean, people that used to in World War One, at the beginning of the war, when you just kind of freaked out, you had you know, we what we call PTSD, you were given a diagnosis of LMF in the British Army. Lack of moral fiber. In other words, you're a coward. That's yeah, not what's going on. World War I's ugly. Right? So, I mean, is it more common with man-made situations? Yes. But does it happen? We should, as I mentioned, rape victims, but now, survivors may be better. But it is more common in man-made situations. By the way, treatment for PTSD right now, there's people looking at clinical trials using ecstasy. And it's had some success, so let's hope. Because after people go put their lives in the line for the country, and then they just they get screwed up. You know. I don't know. Now this all going to be very sad today. Um, so depression, just very quickly, I'm sure you guys know this, but it isn't just feeling down. Um, it's actually a lack of feeling anything. So it's, it's the length of time and the severity. 
if something bad happens to you, it makes sense to feel down. It makes sense to feel nothing. It makes sense to feel worthless and like life has no meaning. That's how you're supposed to feel. In fact, if you don't feel that way after something bad, that's disordered. We call that a disorder too. Right? And I always, I can never remember the length. I think it's, is it six months? It's six months, right? So after six months, if you're still feeling you can't get out of bed, life has no meaning, six months after something nasty happens, that's what we call that an issue, right? That's feelings of worthlessness, like life has no meaning, that kind of thing. It's generally a lack of motivation in a lot of respects. You, depressed people don't get out of bed in the morning a lot of times. They don't go to work, they don't go to school. Depressed people don't have a shower. Why would I? Depressed people actually, the very depths of depression, are very unlikely to kill themselves. You know why? Because they think they'll screw it up. The antidepressant, when you start taking antidepressants and going into therapy, that's when you're more likely, just at the very beginning, to actually do self-harm. Because you just get enough motivation that you think you can pull it off. But at the very depths, people aren't killing themselves. It's when they're just coming out. And that's why a lot of times people say antidepressants cause suicides. That's actually probably an antidepressant effect and poor counseling. Poor counseling isn't taken into account. Okay, so that's what depression is. Is it adaptive? What? How could that be adaptive? Well, one of the pioneers of evolutionary medicine, uh, I always want to call him Nessa, and I, I don't know if you pronounce that. It's either Nessa or Ness. It can't be Nessie, because that would make it like the Loch Ness Monster. He's American. He's probably Ness. He's the University of Michigan. Um, he's the director of, I think, the Evolutionary Medicine Institute there, which is kind of one of the first places to do teach med students uh, the evolutionary uh, angle. Um, what Ness says is that after you make a mistake, now I'm not, uh, I'm not judging anybody. <laughs> Let's say you have a bad relationship and you get it. Well, I guess it was probably a mistake to be in it, okay? I'm not saying it's your fault. Okay? <laughs> but what would be the adaptive thing to do? Well, you just did a whole bunch of stuff that didn't work. Obviously. Right? So do something else. In fact, don't expend any resources behaving at all. Withdraw a little bit. Oh. Now, now I can see an adaptive angle to depression. I'm not saying it's good. And the, the kind of depression I'm talking about here isn't necessarily the kind of the sort of major depressive disorder. I'm talking about the less than six months depression. Right? But the less than six months depression, the kind of stuff we call I'm depressed. Not the kind of stuff a clinical psychologist because you're depressed. It relates. The kind of thing people go, how do you know I feel kind of depressed? When non psychology students say that. Psychology students say that, they, they don't tend to say things like that. 
They also tend to say things like, I'm feeling kind of schizophrenic today. With a touch of Ebola. Um, so, in that case, then you can see the adaptiveness, right? Now, how might one test this? Well, a student of mine, maybe, what, four years ago, Jocelyn Court, tested this in her honors thesis. She told, people were given a couple of different scenarios, and they were told about a person. They were given a, a picture of the person, and it was just an average-looking uh, person, man or woman, depending on the subject, okay? So, like, a, rated at a 7 out of 10 independently. Just a nice-looking, nice-enough-looking person. And then they were given a description of how the person reacted in a certain situation. And it was with the uh, loss of a family member, okay, like the death, and how they behaved. So it told about the person, and then it would say, uh, so-and-so's uh, you know, brother just died of cancer, or something like that. It's, I can't remember exactly And you probably, you know, uh, so, has had some problems in school lately, but generally has this, these kind of grades. The other people were told this happened, and they were told that. But kept going to school and didn't miss a beat. And then no one really knows because he's what's our brave or she facade. What's more attractive? The people that acted the way you're supposed to. So not only does it probably conceivably help you to, to, to not have the same behavior, but when you act what we consider appropriate, I think it was inappropriate. A lot of people do that. Right? When my dad died, I didn't take any time at all. I just kept going to work. What are you going to do? Was it a substitute teacher? No, I kept going to get the hat to. Right? People are like, way to go, Dave. You're very strong. Blah, blah, blah. Yes, I just... Um, you may guess that I swear. But it's interesting that we value that as a society, don't we? We like that. We're like, oh, wow, you're great. But the interesting thing is people found me more attractive when they did what, we, what is actually probably normal and correct. Interesting thing. So it's the first time we were... Because, I don't know, Jocelyn said to me she wanted to look at this. And I said, yeah, but you can't. I don't see how we can. And then we sat down and designed this honors thesis experiment. It was a pretty cool little study. You have to do the bounce back eventually, and that's when we don't have, quote, depression. So Nessus talked about the depression threshold. Once you get to enough bad things happen, you withdraw. Okay? When you lose enough, and I mean lose at life, and I bet that doesn't sound very nice, but it's bad things happen to you. That's why I got it in quotes. So what happens is eventually you slow down, you stop behaving. You can say this would be an adaptive thing because maybe the behavior you're doing is causing something bad. Now, again, I don't think I killed my father. I'm quite sure I did. I'm pretty sure it was brain cancer. But, or, you know, whatever, whatever you had a situation. So, this isn't the same as losing a relationship. <laughs> no, 
know, so maybe the thing is, maybe some people just have a lower depression threshold than others. And if you get a really low depression threshold, you end up withdrawing more often. Because people that are actually, and I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that actually does have major depressive disorder, it's frustrating talking to someone with major depressive disorder. It's actually frustrating because you can't, they, they just don't, they almost aren't reality testing. You can say, no, what do you mean you'll just screw up everything? What do you mean everything's your fault? Everything bad in the world? That whole Middle East thing, you do that? You can't make jokes with them, nothing. They just look at you going, yeah, well, I don't know. I screwed that up too. It's like, no, you didn't. How could it be your fault? Right? So it's, it actually is exceedingly dis, dis, it's, it's very um, disconcerting talking to people that are depressed. And it may be that they have just this little depression threshold. You don't feel that way when you're talking to somebody after they've had a big major thing in their life. You comfort them, whatever. But when someone's like, oh, the coffee maker broke, I probably broke it. I was 10 years old, and what's a coffee maker cost? 20 bucks, who cares? Yeah, but it just shows what a loser I am. You know people like that? Eeyore. What's that, me? You're Eeyore. saying who? Eeyore. Oh, Eeyore. Yeah, it's like Eeyore. Yeah, there you go. It's like the unwritten law song, uh, Save Me. You know that song? God, they're man. Remember that So maybe others have one that's too high. <laughs> That's another possibility. And that would be some of the people who talked about in the study that, that, that Jocelyn Court did. We basically changed their depression thresholds of people and changed everything else, made everything else the same. And the people that had too high a depression threshold weren't interested. The people that were, quote, depressed after this happened and not using the clinical term but using it as we sort of use in popular parlance, people felt more attractive, were more likely to say they would go in a date with somebody. Now I can say that there's the sympathy factor there that we can't really, it's hard to pull that out there. So you might feel, oh, well, yeah, sure I would, just give the guy a break. I'm not really that attracted to him, but poor guy. You know, that kind of thing. So this hasn't really been looked at too closely, so it's an interesting idea. I think it's going to ask, is this actually a good explanation? Um, it's interesting that depressed people can actually be a little more accurate about how the world works than non-depressed people. We have the self-serving bias. We have the self-serving bias. The idea that um, good things are our fault and bad things are the environment's fault and everybody else around us. And that probably keeps us pretty sane. We talked about this before. We talked about consciousness, right? The idea that we basically lie to ourselves all the, th all the time. Um, <laughs> people that are in the midst of depression are probably a little more accurate about how the world works than people that aren't. Um, but it is disordered thinking. It's interesting. Now, there are other kinds of depression. Seasonal affective disorder, um, which especially the further north you get, the more likely that shows up, which is, you know, Completely really sensible. Um, this is the idea that you get more down as the days get shorter. <coughs> right? And there are people that can get diagnosed with this, and there's a beautiful, obviously, what's the treatment? It's to give people full spectrum light. And it works. Please. 18% of the Inuit population has it. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Now, the, the interesting thing would be 
of the population that didn't evolve in that uh, environment, what, have, what percent have it? Well, Iceland I, doesn't experience SAB people in Iceland. I wonder why that is, though. I don't know. Probably that was drunk. the question we came to I wonder why that would be. Though they're not as far, Iceland's not as far north. Yeah, it's pretty far north. They have full days of darkness. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so do Swedes, yeah. mm-hmm. Finns, you know that whole group over there? <laughs> Norwegians, Russians. Russians are just angry, they just want to <laughs> pissed off, right? Taking their shirts off. <laughs> See, in Canada, we would not vote for a guy who got up and went, took his shirt off, and wrestled a bear or something. Where's it in Russia? It's like, hey, they think it's a good policy wrestling bears without shirts. <laughs> I don't know, I just do, I just do my drawn impression. Whenever anybody big on the string, you're a pee in, right? Why would you not want to wrestle a bear? Da, 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 da. Um, so, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting, though. I mean, I've heard that about the Inuit population, and I've heard the thing about Iceland. It makes sense because we're not supposed to live, I keep saying, we shouldn't live so far north of our south. Basically nowhere north of Columbus, Ohio, I think. <laughs> I, just, I just think it starts to get cold. Maybe a little further south. The Carolinas, I think, would be fine. Uh, in North America, and then you want to go to Europe, you can live a lot of Europe because it doesn't snow so much. Maybe not. we want to live in Germany or up way up north where people do because we build stuff. Damn people with our smartness. I'd love to know what the deal is on people in Iceland then, or people in Uppsala, Sweden, places like that. You know, where it's midnight sun or midnight dark. Or people in Whitehorse, Yellowknife, whatever. You know. Um, a friend of Isabel's uh, worked at Alert, which is the furthest north. Uh, settlement in Canada, it's basically just a, a, it's a weather station and like 50 guys from the army. Yeah. And like, it's always cold there. It's, it's so far north that no one, the Inuit are like, why would you want to live up there? <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> right? Um, and it's apparently just, just weird. That's all. It's the only government building in Canada where you're, 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 you're you can only smoking inside. No, that's what it's <laughs> And that's not because you're going to freeze to death. That's because when, because they drive around in like uh, four-wheel drive vehicles, mostly snowmobile type things. Um, if gas leaks, it doesn't evaporate. It just soaks into the snow. So if you were to throw a match and you light the snow on fire, because it's so cold. Oh, in the winter. In the summer, when it gets up to minus four, minus five. <laughs> Yeah, she's told, was telling us, yeah, it's been minus, she's been there, it's like minus 60. She'd call us sometimes back in Toronto. I was like, what's the weather like? Oh, there's just ice in the air, ice crystals. What? And it's minus 50. What? Why are... Like, you know, it's like, you can't say, why don't you leave? Because there's nowhere to go. <laughs> so it's a real thing. And it makes sense, because we didn't evolve in this far north or far south. No, no one really lives... In Antarctica, they're like natively. There's also the differences in female versus male, female male differences in depression. Um, So women are more depressed than men. 
There are more women that are diagnosed with major depressive disorder than men. Well, this is interesting because some possible explanations here, and I think one of the keys evolutionarily is that women carry children and the decisions they make are, lar- are larger for their fitness, more obvious to them, right? So why is it so common? Because depression is becoming more common, too. Now, it also may be the case, by the way, that depression is becoming more common because there's less of a stigma about saying you have depression. I remember I teach neuropharmacology, and it used to be that when I would mention antidepressants, people would just write stuff down and ask the other question. Now people say, well, I'm on Prozac. I just need to volunteer it. And that's a good thing, by the way, being a healthy, healthy, th- healthy thinking and sensible about these things and not having a stigma attached. Um, I think part of it is the sort of disconnect between the EEA and today. For example, the number of close-by relatives you have. We used to live in quasi-family groups of about 30 to 50 people. We don't now. Right? So few, we may live around a lot more people, but we don't, we don't have as many people we can confide in, we can talk to, we can get advice from, or perhaps it'll just slap us in the face and get, say, get a hold of yourself. We don't have as many of those people around anymore. So the number of relatives that are close by is different. We also have these things now called jobs. We didn't have jobs. There were no jobs. What do you do for a living? The same thing everyone does. I hunt, she gathers. It's pretty cool. That's how the world works. We didn't have, well, I'm a spear maker. I make some of the finest spears of our clan of 30 people. No. There was division of labor, sure. Older people did different things than younger people. Women did different things than men. Fine. But there weren't. This idea of doing the same damn thing every day, that's a real disconnect between the EEA and today. And again, obviously this is a case where I don't think that it's morally right that we have, or wrong that we have jobs. Dave said there should be no jobs. <laughs> they think you should all be unemployed. Also, power used to be pretty visible, right? The guy has the alligator tooth in his mouth, he's got the power. It was pretty clear who the head guy was. And it was usually a guy. And then there would be a head female as well. It's pretty clear. The head male was getting all the meeting opportunities. It's pretty obvious who he is. It's not visible now. Right? Because of the Illuminati. I mean, that part, I was kidding. I was kidding. I'm glad you realized I was kidding. But I mean, the bureaucracy we live in today, sort of almost Kafkaesque, Byzantine, to mix metaphors, um, world we live in now. It's hard to know. It's even in our little school here, the smallest university in Ontario, it is hard to know who to go to talk to about certain things. Is it the registrar's office? I don't know. I don't think so. Is that financial aid? Well, where's that? We run around all day. I don't know where the power is. I work here. I have no idea. 
have some idea. More than most of you do, but nonetheless, not a lot. So that might lead to make things become unpredictable. Right? We live in a global culture now. We, it used to be, who did you compare yourself to when you live in a family group between 30 and 50 people? I compare myself to the other 15 to 25, depending on the size of my group, guys. Sure, makes sense. I didn't know what was going on in the next, over the next hill, much less in another part of Africa, or later on, other part of Europe or North America or Asia. Nowadays, We are bombarded by, so this is pretty different than the EEA. I actually know what's happening in the world. You know, why can't I be more like Steven Pinker, famous evolutionary psychologist. And by the way, I don't feel that way. I'm perfectly happy with who I am, but nonetheless, we get all this different stuff coming at us that we never used to get before. That's a big thing, I think. So those are some disconnects between the EEA and today that may be leading to this increase in the, to, to, well, to the fact that there is depression. Here's another idea. Maybe depression is actually a negotiation. Maybe it's a way to get help from your kin. Even though now they're not around, by the way. Right? Now they're all over the place. But maybe it's a way kind of socially cheat. Oh, I can't do anything. Can you get food for me? Uh, you lazy bastard. You. This actually explains postpartum depression quite nicely. The idea when after women have a baby, they're more likely to get depressed, right? It's a way to maybe get everybody to help you raise the kid, to help you, to give you resources. And again, this isn't something that depressed people are thinking. Well, I know what I'll do. They're not a bunch of steaming bastards. Yeah. Again, I think probably some are, because there's 7 million people on the planet. There's got to be some jerks like that. But I think most people that are depressed aren't thinking like that. Because actually, most depressed people wouldn't be able to think that they could pull that off. Oh, I'd screw that up anyway. But the outcome is that you get more stuff and help from others. This is a pretty new idea. I've seen this kind of stuff very recently. The idea that depression is negotiation. And it doesn't mean necessarily that that's, that, that, that's not incompatible with the idea that depression is has to do with the disconnect from the EEA today. Those can perfectly they can coexist really nicely, by the way. So they aren't mutually exclusive explanations. I really like this idea. Right? I, I think this is kind of neat. I just like it because it's, it's counterintuitive, but it makes some sense, so I kind of like it. I like stuff like that. All right, questions about depression. Well, the ultimate thing that happens in depression is sometimes you kill yourself. Um, 
that doesn't seem like something that is good for your, you know, fitness. Because you can't pass on your genes anymore. And it's not going to be group selection. Some people say, well, it's for the good of the group. And I will call you a naive group selectionist if you say that. Who are you, Win Edwards? Nobody got that reference? Jeez. Somebody, oh, yeah, it's good. I'm glad. Um, did you get it? I think you'll smile there. I was a little smile. No, no, okay. And he was a guy who thought it was Edwards group selection in the 60s. Wrong, thanks for playing. Evolution doesn't happen at the group level, except maybe one time in viruses and maybe one time in rabbits in Australia. But probably not. Probably still explain that at the individual or gene level. So it's part of group selection. Why does a group selection work? Why do you think it's a good species? Guy that drives me nuts. I was watching this dinosaur show the other day. It's a brand new dinosaur show called The Dinosaur Revolution, which kind of sounds like it could be a sci fi show, but no, it's. Um, about the new stuff that's come out in the last 10 years about dinosaurs. And it was on the, the Animal Planet ch uh, channel, which I didn't even know I got. There's so many channels, I didn't know the channel I have. This comes on, they talk about feathered dinosaurs, all the stuff they know now, and how it's accepted that birds are dinosaurs. Very, very cool stuff. Oh, this will be exciting. I'll watch this, and the CGI isn't as good as walking with dinosaurs, but it's still okay. Neat. And they said, and then for the good of the species, and I went, no! <laughs> things don't happen to the good of the species. You don't do things for the good of the humans, you do things for the good of yourself. Because if you do things for the good of the humans, you go ahead and do that. I'll just do things for myself and I'll get stuff from you and from me. I win, you lose. Group selection doesn't work. But then why do people... Because that's the idea, like, well, I'm going to do myself in because I, I'm hurting the group. If you look at it from the kin selection point of view, I'm hurting my family. And those are my genes then that's different. And in fact, this is depressing work. Looking at suicide notes shows that people often say that they're a burden. Yeah, please. What about for like suicide bombers? Like... Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're doing that for the good of... Not themselves. Uh, of, not themselves, no. Though there's a belief in an afterlife there, um, which would motivate that. But there's also the idea that it's for the good of the... It's still, it's kin selection, but it's not really kin. But when you're told that you are different than the other, your people are different than the other people, in group kind of stuff, as they say in social psychology, that's basically playing on kin selection. It's the same thing when soldiers jump on grenades for other soldiers they're related to. Because soldiers are brought up, or not brought up, but trained in the to think of those guys as their family. And I think so are suicide bombers. That they're doing something for the good of whatever their cause is. And their cause, it's like their family. Right? So I think we can look at that still as kin selection. Though it's not really kin selection, but it's, 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 it's something co-opting the mechanism of kin selection. You know what I mean? Why did firefighters go in? Why did they go into buildings that are burning? Isn't that stupid? When you go, well, this is uh, pays pretty good, but I'm going to stay here and watch the fire. They walk in, right? Yeah, for the most part, they know that the buildings aren't going to collapse. Except, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, rather, they they knew those buildings weren't going to collapse. It's like, oh, we're going in. This is what we do. I can't even fathom that kind of thing. 
And none of us can because, and that's why we're so impressed with it. Right? That kind of commitment. And again, I think probably they're trained that they have to do this for all people. It's the same kind of thing. I think it's co-opting the kid selection mechanism, which I hope you don't think in any way is me saying that would be right. I think it's cool. I'm pretty sure I can do it. I think I'd probably be like, anybody in there related to me? We had a uh, final exam in graduate school uh, when I was taking a course in, well, uh, it's what we used to call, we used to call uh, evolutionary psychology sociobiology, but then people didn't like that and thought it was mean or something. It's a long story. Um, so the final exam, one of the exam questions was, um, your house is on fire. Inside, there is your spouse, your three children, a cousin, Half brother, an uncle, your parents, and your dog. What order do you rescue them in? <laughs> and it's you rescue the uh, oldest kid first, and the next kid, and the next. Then you rescue your half brother and half sister. Then you rescue. Sorry, then you rescue your parents, your mother first, then your father, because you know that's your mother. I'm not sure it's your father. Never can be sure, so we have to Then you rescue your half-brothers and sisters, your aunts, your uncles, same amount of genes. Then you rescue the cousin, and finally the dog. Oh, did I say it was kids? Spouse. Oh, spouse, you didn't have one of those. No, I'm serious. No, yeah, spouse and dog. Because you can get a new dog one. And, and they, have, they don't share genes in common with you, except they share more genes in common with you than your dog does. Now, of course, no one really makes those kind of things. And Bill Hamilton, the guy who came up with kids like that, once asked, um, would you give a bullet for your child? And he said, no, but for two of them. <laughs> Just, I mean, him being funny, he was apparently a very nice man. Uh, well,
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's pod safe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.